So today we conclude our series on beauty. And I want us to open up our hearts and our minds and just allow our capacity to be expanded. Beauty. Just think with me for a, a bit here. Beauty. What is beautiful in your life? What is your definition of the beautiful? Beauty. Ultimately, finally, not measurable by things like color, proportion, shape. Beauty, from a soulish, spiritual sense, philosophical sense, is that which brings its subject. Beauty is that which brings its observer into contact with reality. Anything that brings the subject, the observer, into contact with truth. With Tillich's, Paul Tillich, the great theologian's synonymous term for God was the ground of being. Beauty is that which brings its subject into contact with the ground of being, with God. Life affords many obvious beauties. Anna's voice is an obvious beauty. Life affords many obvious beauties like snow-capped mountains. Although there was a time, we know anthropologically in our distant past, when mountains were not beautiful to people. They were scary. They were monstrous. They were the places that demons hid. But that's not our mind because aesthetics change. Culture and society shifts aesthetics over time. But these obvious beauties like the snow-capped mountain, the exquisitely symmetrical face, the pastels of Monet or Renoir, the brutal gestures and flexible rhythms of Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and the great Russian composers, these types of obvious beauties are never to be dismissed. They are always to be observed and appreciated. They are unquestionable aesthetic gifts, gifts that attract us, gifts that arrest us, gifts that please us, titillate us, ultimately transform us. This is what beauty does. Thus, four weeks of time together talking about beauty and experiencing beauty. Beauty catches us. Beauty stimulates us. Beauty changes us. Beauty makes us better. Beauty increases the capacity of our soul. That's why in the formal academic process there are things like music appreciation and art appreciation for kids like me coming out of a little town in northeast Arkansas. I thought those were the dumbest classes that anybody could ever put in a general education curriculum. And yet looking back now I realize that the title said it all, music appreciation, art appreciation. There wasn't even the effort to try to make me like this music or these pieces. There was simply the effort to ask me to open my soul to it. There is, there is knowledge and there is quotient. There is an accumulation of information and there is IQ. Intelligence quotient is the same for a person when they're five years old as it is when they're 50. 
the quotient of a person's, a person's intelligence is something that after the early elementary years doesn't really increase much. Some even argue that it doesn't increase from birth. Questionable. But a person's quotient does not tell you how much is in the filing cabinet. It just tells you how big the filing cabinet is. And not only do we have intelligent quotients that cap how much information we can hold or how we process information, but our souls also have quotients. I remember my great-grandfather, an old country preacher that was wise in so many ways, when my great-grandmother passed away, he said something about quotient that I'll never forget, Michael. He, we were standing there at her, uh, at where she was lying in state. He was in a wheelchair, and he stood beside her, and he looked at me, Mandy, and he said, I love her more today than I did when I first fell in love with her. I love her more today than I did even yesterday. And then he smiled and he said, but in those days when I first loved her, I loved her as much as I could. But I had a pint container then, but time has had a way, <laughs> time has had a way of wallowing out a 55-gallon drum in my soul. From a pint container to a 55-gallon drum, He's not talking about the content, he's talking about the capacity. I'll never forget that, lie, that line. Life has a way of wallowing out the soul. Life has a way of increasing the capacity. That famous quote that I, I, not a famous quote, but I've almost made it famous because I've used it so often through the years by Andrew Sue. A widened heart sees others with hope and possibility as opposed to with a severe, loveless accuracy. Boy, chew on that for a minute. A widened heart sees others with hope and possibility, as opposed to with a severe, loveless accuracy. Do you know what it means to be viewed or to view with a severe, loveless accuracy? Can you taste what that means? It's... It, it's the Pharisees dragging a woman before Jesus and saying, the scripture said, here she is. We literally caught them red-handed. That's a severe, loveless accuracy to which Jesus responds, let those of you without sin cast the first stone from the oldest to the youngest. That's interesting. From the oldest to the youngest, the Bible said they dropped the rocks. From the oldest... Why the oldest? Why were the oldest? Why were the oldest the first to release their judgment? Because as narrow as they were, at least in their age, they had a larger capacity to hear and to be changed, to be confronted. We have quotients in our soul, and beauty, art, whether it's nature or art, the face of a child, a flowing river, Burgess Falls that Lynn and I saw just yesterday, 136 feet. Who knew it's an hour and 15 minutes from Nashville? Wow. Beauty, if you let it, has a way of wallowing out the soul and increasing the capacity of a soul, increasing the quotient of a soul. With this being beauty's vocation, if this is the work of beauty... 
If beauty is a soul maker, if beauty is a Christ maker in Christian language, if that is true, then we dare not be too limited with our definition of the beautiful. We dare not be too limited in our definition of the beautiful because to limit the definition of the beautiful is to limit beauty's access into my life and to limit my opportunities for transformation to walk past incredible chances for change. Michael, I was thinking about you and the loss of a kidney and especially this morning I was thinking about how something like this could be transformed. It seems so ugly on one hand that a man with two children and an incredible wife and a great life just one day can have a slight physical ailment and the next day be headed for cancer surgery and the loss of a major organ and then the recovery and the pain and possible radiation or whatever it is and then that looming thought of did we get all of that that we've talked about and yet I thought about the psalmist David the Lord is my shepherd he makes me he makes me lie down in green pastures and I thought about you lying flat on your back and it's easier to think about you than it would be me but you know the difference between major and minor surgery it's minor if it's on you and major if it's on me but um, have there been green pastures yet green pastures that we would not have chosen to lie down in but he makes me lie down because I didn't see their verdant tones I didn't see the greenness of the pasture I was walking so swiftly and so busily through I scarcely noticed the color at all but he makes me lie down and time and circumstances stop us and we see the greenness and the beauty to limit our definition of beauty to things as simple as exquisite symmetries and incredible palettes of color to limit our definition is to limit our opportunities for transformation to diminish our chances for change to to truncate to just cut off at the knees the horizon of life that is stretching infinitely before us to just narrow the spectrum down to this trite and oversimplified definition that is so easy to knee-jerk into through billboards and culture the birth of a baby the shape the shifting shape of a tornado the rage of a forest fire violent things messy things painful things disarrayed things these beauties don't fit in the aforementioned trite oversimplified definitions of beauty that we so quickly defer to but if beauty if beauty is that which infinitely is opening a door to me a door to another world a world that is within me but a world I have not recognized 
If beauty then is that infinitely revolving opening door that invites us to pass through it again and again and again into experiences of a larger space, that's why I think things like music appreciation and art and taking your kids to everything from bees that make honey to concerts at TPAC to traveling and seeing oceans taking them to foreign countries. The beauty of travel, the beauty of art, the beauty of nature. There are 12 waterfalls within two hours of Nashville. And we sit with our kids on Saturday afternoon watching television. So many opportunities. Opportunities, doors that literally are inviting us to pass through them into experiences of larger spaces. Larger rooms, larger worlds. As Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. And better ideas don't always come through words. As a matter of fact, words are inept in comparison to experiences. To expose our children, to expose our own souls to beauty... A beauty that calls us to move beyond our little spaces. A beauty that calls us up that little four-mile gravel road in Paragold, Arkansas before we ever hit pavement. That calls us up that, that gravel road from that little yellow frame house where I lived, where life was so good but so small. Beauty calls us up the road to move beyond what we have known into new understanding and new experiences and if that's the purpose of beauty then we dare not limit that door we dare not shortchange our souls by having short-sighted definitions of what beauty is just the kind of music that we like and the kind of things that we like and the little nests that we've built for ourselves we dare not shortchange our souls by limiting the field on which beauty plays and the canvas on which it's painted. Beauty unnoticed due inattentiveness means we are spiritually sloppy and even shallow. But beauty missed due unawareness is a grave sadness. Beauty is the portal to a deeper experience, the experience of expansion, the experience of growth. Anything that serves as a portal, any hospital room, any surgery, any, any pain or any joy that leads us into the experience of expansion, of growth, of soul making, as Maslow said, of actualizing. This is beauty, and often beauty is right in front of us. Beauty so often is unnoticed, unappreciated, unremarked. So then we must expand our definitions of beauty, and that's what I just wanted to talk up a little bit about today. This is not necessarily an epiphany, and it's something certainly that we all know, but something we can so often and so quickly lose. We must expand, we must maintain an expanded and expanding definition of what beauty is. 
We must ever be about the business of recalibrating our minds and refocusing our eyes and retuning our ears because beauty can be quite surprising in its forms. Beauty can sneak up on us when we least expect it. C.S. Lewis wrote in his classic book, Surprised by Joy, beauty comes to us in ways that we would have never assumed. God wears uniforms that we would have never imagined. You ever see your postal person? I grew up all my life. Um, maybe it doesn't work this way these days. I haven't really thought about it. But I grew up all my life with the same postman that came up and down our little gravel road for the first 12, 14 years of my life. And he always wore one of those postal uniforms. I saw him every day. I was always the kid running out to get the Sports Illustrated magazine. I loved the mail, and I saw him hundreds of times. My German shepherds were always biting the tires of his little, that little, those little Jeeps, you know, with the steering wheel on the wrong side. And after seeing him my entire life, Chris, one day I remember I was at Walmart, and my mom was talking to this guy and I remember standing there strangely, and she said, well, Stan, aren't you going to say hi? And I said, hi. And she said, well, you don't know who this is, do you? I said, no. She said, this is Bob, our postman. It was the same face, the same hair, the same man. He simply wasn't wearing his uniform. You get used to seeing people in their uniforms and the uniform becomes them and you lose their face. Shannon, you know what I'm talking about? I remember back in the early days of ministry when I was with Brother Hardwick at Christ Church, he was from that classic tradition that preachers always wore jackets and suits. You know, Brother Hardwick was fantastic. If you went over to his house and he was mowing his yard, he would get, he would get casual to mow his yard by taking his jacket off and tucking his tie in his dress shirt. And those of you that knew Brother Harvick or know him, you know this is true of him. So I was his young mentoree, and I wanted to be L.H. Hardwick, which is not a bad thing to be. I wanted to be him so desperately. I wore suits every day. And I remember every now and then only wearing suits. I remember every now and then I would be at a store. I would be at a Target or a mall, and people would see me with jeans and a T-shirt on, and they would walk up to me or... Sometimes I, I remember distinctly, Chris, seeing people and they would be looking at me because they only knew me in the suit and tie. And they would be looking at me and when I would turn and look at them, they would look away nervously. And then I would look back and they would be looking at me. Finally, I would go to them and they'd be like, I, I've never seen you. Isn't that sad? <laughs> I've never seen you looking dressed casual like this. Uniforms. God and life gets stuck in uniforms for us and beauty synonymous with the, that those terms beauty gets stuck in uniforms for us and unremarked unnoticed and unappreciated beauty slides by beauty is the ugly face Beauty is the scowling face. Beauty is the face that causes horror. Beauty is the face of a brother named Esau in the Old Testament story. Two boys born twins. 
one the heel grabber named Jacob, the other the eldest brother. Red-skinned, hairy, a woodsman. The younger twin was jealous of the older brother because the older brother, scarcely by seconds, had a birthright, an inheritance twice as large as his. Always jealous, always envious, always grabbing at the heel of this preceding brother, Jacob one day found a way to trick him. Ravenously hungry from the woods after a long hunt, Esau, dying for a bowl of porridge, is caught by Jacob in a vulnerable moment. Twisting his way, cuttingly, Jacob convinces Esau to give up his birthright to him for one bowl of porridge. The writer of Hebrews said Esau was a profane man. If that is true, then profanity, profanity is thus defined as someone who twitters away the eternal and the important for the temporal and the immediate. And this profane man lost his birthright to his younger brother. And after his belly was full and after the satiation physically was there, he came to his senses. He awakened and he realized that he had been robbed, that he had robbed himself, but he had been manipulated by a younger brother who was supposed to love him. And Esau, reporting that to his father, Isaac, began to conspire how he would get this younger brother back. The contract could not be broken. The covenant was made. His life had forever shifted. And now in the place of that double portion birthright was a heart that was bitter, a heart that was raging, a heart filled with vitriol and hate for this one that he had loved. The Bible tells us that the mother, Rebecca who favored her younger son Jacob knew what was happening in the heart of this older boy who had been tricked and even in the heart of her husband Isaac and she sent him out the back door in the middle of the night to save his life. He traveled to Padan Aram north, uh, in North Palestine, north of where they lived by a few hundred miles and he lived there with an old uncle named Laban. For 20 years he lived a life that was not his own. For 20 years for 20 years he wrestled, he dreamed, he had nightmares of his brother. For 20 years he lived with regret as he himself was tricked and betrayed by his own father-in-law. Karma, sowing and reaping, whatever you want to call it, what goes around comes around. His life was hard. His life was not physically on the run, but psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually he was always on the run from Esau. He ran from him. In the visions of the day, he ran from him in his own betrayals. He ran from him in the nightmares of the night. Until finally one day, life put him in a position that life always puts us in. A position where he was forced to go home and face down his demons. There is always that moment in every life on the soul-making journey where you can only run so far... There is, a, there is an apex to the journey for every prodigal. There is, there is, by the grace of God, an internal homing device that limits the geography to which you can go in running from yourself and your demons. Some people take that journey to um, remarkable ends, but even for those who burst through, in the 12-step world we call it rock bottom, those who burst through rock bottom after rock bottom after rock bottom, even for them, there is finally that point where they come to themselves. 
and there is the turn and they have to go home. It may not be good, it may not end well, but if I die, if I die an immediate and harsh death, it will be better than the long, slow, diabetic truncating of digits and fingers and toes and feet, that little bit of lopping off of the soul night after night, day after day. And he turned his face and he said, I've got to go home. The face of that brother, ugly with rage. The face of that brother, no beauty to behold. A face of horror, a face macabre with fear of retribution. As he gets near, a servant comes to him. He is with his wife and his children. And the servant comes to him, red-faced and panting, and said, Jacob, Esau's coming. He heard you were on your way back home. He heard that you crossed the demilitarized zone into his territory, and he's coming. And Jacob whispers, is he alone? No, there are people with him. How many, Jacob says, 300 at least. Men on horses. Faces stern, jaws clenched. And Jacob knows the skinny is up. Life is soon to be done. It is an ugly situation. The Bible tells us that he was so traumatized that he set his family, half of them on one side of a little creek called Jabok, just a ford of water. On one side was half and on the other side was half, thinking to himself strategically if Esau gets to us in the night, perhaps half of my family will flee. A coin toss for half of his children, a coin toss for his wives, a coin toss for those who meant the most to him. And after setting them on each side and putting them to sleep, knowing that there was no way to outrun these 300 marauding, traveling men with Esau, no doubt tools and tools of, uh, or executioners of judgment, the Bible says that Jacob went to a place, a little place there on the sandy loam shore of that little creek, and he dug his knees into that soil, and he began wrestling. God, the reason that hits me is because haven't we all been there? When there's no place to run, no place to go, nothing but mirrors, nothing but that arresting come-to-Jesus moment with ourselves. And he begins to wrestle there all night long, the same way that a distant relative of his would wrestle in Gethsemane two millennia almost later. And he wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles, begging God, please, at least half of my family, please, could you spare my children? It's me that Esau wants. It's me who tricked him. It's me who deserves the ugliness of his wrath. Please. And all night long he wrestles until finally somewhere in the middle of the night he is accosted from behind. His face is driven down into the sand, arm twisted behind his back, grabbed by the hair of his head. He knows what has happened. Esau has found him. If not Esau, one of his best men. And in the darkness of the night with no doubt in his mind that the enemy had come, that his time to meet justice was near and the ugliness of that pain. He wrestled, the Bible said. He wrestled and he fought and he kicked and he scratched. 
He clawed and he punched, but no headway was to be made. Wrestling through the night until finally the Bible said the sun began to break. And as the glint of sun began to cast its way across the shadows of the night, Jacob looked, and the one with whom he wrestled was not Esau at all. Not one of his men, not one who carried hatred. But he looked, and this is where Hebrew theology becomes somewhat vague and mysterious. He looked, Lee, into the face of at least an angel and perhaps a god. It was the angel of the Lord's presence. Perhaps one of God's minions with wings, perhaps God himself. The Jewish rabbis in the time of the exile concluded that the angel of the Lord actually was a doppelganger for you, that you actually had a guardian angel out there in the world that looked just like you. And every now and then, if you got out of line, would grab you by the hair of the head and wrestle with you. Whoever it was, an angel or God, the beauty of it all is that this ugly night of wrestling was not with the ugly Esau and the ugly circumstance of his past. Surprise, Jacob. Surprise when God comes to you unaware. Surprise when God wears a uniform that God doesn't normally wear. Surprise when you find out that your greatest wrestling match isn't with Esau. It's not with your enemy. It's not even with yourself. Your greatest wrestling match might be with the divine. The one that will never leave you alone. The one that's always seeking to call you up, to change you. Surprise. The Bible says as he wrestled there through the night... The early hours of the morning began to shift his definition of what was good and what was bad. Oh, this simple, oversimplified binary of good and bad, darkness and light, yin and yang. Oh, the beauty of spiritual evolution that's happening, the trajectory of all of the religions now that are shooting us, Christianity notwithstanding, that are shooting us away from that binary of the ugly and the beautiful, the good and the bad. Till we realize that we have oversimplified, we have misdefined, we have this tragic way of trying to cast everything in our life into the good circumstances and the bad circumstances, the good people, the bad people, the beautiful and the ugly. And the Bible says that now as he realizes that this is God's presence that he's wrestling with, the one that he punched, the one that he clawed, and the one that he scratched, now the Bible says he wraps his arms around this one with whom he wrestled. And he says to him, don't let me go. What a shift, Roy. From <laughs> I want to get out of this to don't let me go. The same circumstance. Nothing has changed except his sight. The same wrestling match, nothing has changed except his perception. That which was ugly is now beautiful. That which was rejected is now embraced. And the whisper to the one that he said, let me go, is now, do not let me go. All night long he wanted loose. 
And I think it's beautiful to recognize this was a WWE wrestling match. This was a fixed fight. Because do you think God could not have gotten loose if God wanted to? But as Jacob wrapped his arms around this squirming mass of the divine, God chooses not to be free. And the angel of the Lord's presence must think to itself, this is what I've been wanting for you for years. This is what I've been wanting this moment. And as Jacob embraces this which he once rejected, as, as he now begins to see the beauty in what he thought was ugly, as he sees God outside of his uniform, his arms around God, the Bible said in the beauty of that moment, God caresses Jacob's face and says, You are no longer Jacob. You are Israel. You are no longer cunning and deceiver. You are prince with men and God, one who prevails. Your circumstances have not shifted, but your sight has. Your definition of what is good and bad, ugly and beautiful has shifted. And that shift requires even the change of name. You are Israel. And as God caressed his face, whispering his name, new Israel. The other offensive hand of God slides down his shoulder, down his waist, and hits him on a hip. And the caressed one screams, Ah! And the hip is dislocated. And a caress and a dislocation come in the same chapter of his life. Isn't that strange how that happens? Good and bad run on parallel tracks and they get there about the same time. Caresses and dislocations. Why the same chapters? And as he screams with the dislocation, he looks with sad eyes. Why? Why the pain? Why? Why the dislocations? Why the broken? Why the same hand that caresses is the same hand that dislocates? Why? Why the wrestling? Why not just the immediate lone ranger intervention? Why all night long? Why 20 years? There's a New Testament writer who said that God gives us a space to repent. Repentance is simply the change of mind. I'm so thankful that God gives us space for that. A space that sometimes can be years, that sometimes can be a lifetime. What a tragic thing that we pared the gospel down to asking people to come to an altar, sign on the dotted line in 15 seconds. True repentance, the repentance that transforms a soul is a change of mind that happens over a lifetime. It can't be contained in a moment. A moment of conversion. A moment of commitment. And with his hip dislocated and his face caressed, hair in disarray, eyes black, lip bloodied. I've often said... In the early morning hours, he comes dragging that leg back across the creek, Jabbok, and Rachel and Leah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi, the boys, Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. They come running out to meet him. 
And as they stop looking at that befuddled, broken man with the dislocated hip and the bloody lip, one of the boys looks to the other and says, What happened to Dad? And Rachel calls out, What happened to you, husband? And he drags the leg van and he says, I just got blessed. I just met beauty. I just experienced goodness. And across the heavens and leaning over the balcony of that celestial place, one angel hears him say those words and looks at the other angel and says, doesn't look like any blessed man I've ever seen. And God muses to God's self, no, they usually don't. They usually walk with limps just like that. Surprise, Jacob. It's God. But everything worked out at the altar of Jabok. A name changed. A heart changed. A definition of beauty and goodness. A definition of blessing and the beautiful expanded. Oh, but he still has to bring this home to a brother who hates him. What happens to a person? How is a person seen when their seeing is transformed? How is a person experienced when their own experience is transformed? What does my internal experience and my personal seeing have to do with anything? Have to do at all with how people see me or experience me? Well, perhaps everything. Because as he drags that leg toward Esau, now there is no running. But the Bible says he goes headlong to meet that brother. And as he winces, waiting for the beams of his retribution, the Bible said he sees Esau, Esau sees him. There is a charge and perhaps even from a distance, we don't know, but I, I choose to believe that even from a distance, Esau was coming to kill his brother. But as Esau got nearer and nearer, I mean, why do you come with 300 men if it's not to execute judgment and justice? But as Esau gets nearer and nearer, as he says to his men, get ready with the swords, I see Jacob Something happened to the eyes of Esau. The ugly one, the betrayer, the brother who broke his heart and stole his life. As they come nearer, Esau is not simply struck by the lines and the differences that two decades can make. Esau is struck at the sight of this limping one who no longer looks like Jacob. Well, he does, but he doesn't. His eyes are different, not just in how they see, but in how they're seen. And the Bible says that as Esau came near, his heart was transformed. The 300 men sheathed their swords. And Esau put away his grief and his bitterness. Because Esau did not see Jacob, Esau saw Israel, not even knowing his name. A man transformed by beauty and blessing that he could have never recognized before 
And as Esau sees him, the Bible said the one who had come to kill fell on his brother and began to weep. Jacob, no, Israel, scarcely able to believe it, lying down in those green pastures, green pastures that he would have never chosen. It was so obviously a burned over field. It was a burnt forest fire, unwilling to recognize that the burned off forest is that which gives the forest life eventually, that replenishes the soil. As Jacob endured, as William Blake calls them, the beams of his brother's love and forgiveness, Jacob looked up into the face of this ugly one, this one that he had dreamed, this nightmare that he had had. And the eyes of Israel whispers to his brother, Oh, brother, your face, the face that I feared, the face that I loathed, the face of the one I betrayed, your face is as the face of God to me. Ugliness to beauty, ashes transformed to the beautiful, wrestling, souls expanding. We would have been bereft of wisdom and we would have been horrible pastors, shepherds, spiritual guides, if we would have spent three weeks on beauties, colors, shapes, and symmetries, wonder and awe, and not stopped for a moment and reminded all of us that there are green pastures that we sometimes miss. There is incredible light within the darkness. There is life within the conflagration that burns off the forest. And there is gift in the pain. There's an old Taoist story of a farmer, a farmer who raised his children on scant acreage and dutifully toiled the fields to mine a crop from the earth to barely get his family through. All of this was done, not just because of the farmer's hard work, but because of one mighty stallion that the farmer had that pulled the till, that brought in the grain. And then one day, so goes the story, this sustenance, this Blessing, this gift, this centerpiece of his farm runs off and is gone. And all of the neighbors come to the old farmer and they say, What a tragedy it is. What a tragedy it is that you have lost your mighty stallion, the steed that tills the soil and brings in the harvest. How will you live? How will your children survive? What a horrible tragedy they say this is. To which the old wise farmer said, Maybe so. Maybe so. Weeks passed. His heart gripped with fear. His children hungry. Weeks passed. And the old stallion comes back with three wild horses, even the better of it. And all the people come to the farmer and they say, What a stroke of luck! What a gift of providence! You who lost one horse now have four. What a great, great thing this is. To which the old farmer replied, Maybe so. Maybe so. His son 
The eldest son was so thrilled with the new horses, those that would take their farm to the next level and make their life more full. The eldest son unwittingly, unwisely jumped on the back of one of those steeds and was immediately thrown from it, breaking his leg and hip. This son that was to take over the farm from his father, this son whose able shoulders and strength was needed, this son now with broken hip, incapable of helping his father. And all the neighbors came, and you guessed it, they said, what a tragedy it is. What a horrible thing has befallen your family that one of these horses would take away the leg of your son. What a horrible, horrible thing. To which the father replied, maybe so. Within weeks, an intruding army came across the wall into their little village, confronting that entire region in western China. Every young man was conscripted for war. Every young man went out. And every young man in the village was killed except the farmer's son who had a broken leg. The battle somehow was won by the village and as the family gathered with the man who alone had a son, an alive son, the villagers said, what a fortunate man you are. Providence has visited you this day. What a lucky man you are. To which the old farmer replied, maybe so. As we move from our series on beauty, I pray that the spectrum of beauty in all of our lives and minds and souls, I pray that that spectrum will be expanded that the uniforms that we are used to capturing beauty within, the uniforms that ultimately have defined our side of blessing, I pray they will expand for you. I pray they'll expand for me. I pray that we will all have experiences not just of reveling in morning sunsets and evening, or morning sunrises and evening sunsets, but in the messy bloody births of life in the tornadic curves and winds of life in the raging forest fires that sweep through our souls from time to time and even our families I pray that all of us will do the necessary wrestling with God the wrestling that caresses and the wrestling that dislocates but ultimately the wrestling that transforms our eyes because beautiful eyes are not just those that are fixed properly and have the exotic slant. Beautiful eyes are not just about color. Beautiful eyes are less about how they are seen and more about how they see. Beautiful eyes are the ones that see beauty everywhere. And so I encourage you this week, in the obvious beauties, embrace them and enjoy. In those raging, painful moments, those dislocations, look. May God touch your eyes because it just may be that God is whispering there, surprise, it's me. 
out of my uniform on the third aisle at Walmart. Surprise, it's me. Can you say amen? Let's pray together. May our hearts be ever opened. May our minds be transformed. May our souls be expanded. May we find the wisdom of maybe so. May we find the wisdom, the humility, the humility that ceases to define so quickly. May we find the wisdom that begins to understand that losses are actually gains. That pain is actually blessing. That being made to lie down could open us to green pastures. May we find beauty everywhere. And may that beauty open us into new worlds. Make Christ of it all. Make Christ of us all, sweet Christ, that you might truly be our elder brother. O one in whom there was no comeliness or form that we would desire you. One who did not stand out even from the birth and the crib as a beautiful baby. One in whom there was no form or comeliness that we would desire him. Yet one with beautiful eyes who sees us all beautiful, even in our ugliness. The one who runs down the road and drapes himself, herself across the, like mother, like father, across the prodigal, stinking with the hog pen. Oh, thank you for having beautiful eyes, God, that see beauty everywhere, even in us. May we have those same beautiful eyes, we pray. In the name of that one Christ to whom our souls are going and being made, we pray this. And God's people said, now be good to one another, you beautiful, beautiful people. <laughs>